Hey, young ladies, it's Kristen. As you're listening to this episode, I am currently visiting my ancestral homeland of Scotland. But I'm not going to leave you, young ladies, in the lurch while I'm off gallivanting in the Highlands. This week, I am bringing you a little gem from the Unladies Room Patreon. It's one of my favorite interviews from last year with Dr. Fenwa Milhouse, a.k.a. your favorite urologist. And if you are now thinking, wait, a urologist? Why would I need one of those? Put on your adult diaper like a Swifty at the Eras tour and get ready for an education. I'm so excited for y'all to meet today's guest who introduced me to a field of medicine I'd never considered. Her name is Dr. Fenwa Milhouse. She is a Chicago-based urologist. Maybe you've seen her on TikTok at your favorite urologist. And I'll be completely honest, I had to Google what a a, a urologist does. Basically, urologists specialize in urinary tracts and penises. (laughs) Because, of course, the urethra runs through the penis. Um, But since they are the only medical specialty, I believe, that has that specific phallic focus. Uh, My words, no one else's. Urologists developed this nickname as the male gynecologist. She and I talked before the Dobbs decision, but the Washington Post and others have reported that urologists are seeing massive spikes in patients who are interested in vasectomies. A Florida urologist told the Washington Post, I'd say at least 60 or 70 percent are mentioning the Supreme Court decision, and a few of them have such sophistication as young men that they actually are thinking about Justice Thomas and his opinion that contraception may fall next. And that's shocking. That's something that doesn't enter into our conversations ever until this week. But even though urologists know a lot about penises, there's plenty they can do for people with vaginas. Think UTIs, incontinence of various forms, a.k.a. you know, pee in your pants, either a little or a lot or maybe somewhere in between. They also specialize in STIs. And to use a cringe medical term, sexual dysfunction. Urologists are also pretty essential parts of trans healthcare, especially when it comes to gender affirming surgeries and aftercare. And as Dr. Milhouse gets into, um, just basic things like prostate health. But. Roughly 90% of practicing urologists in the U.S. are men. And on top of that vast gender gap, you also have an extremely disproportionately white provider population. Black and Latinx urologists make up, I think, around only 8% of practicing urologists. So Dr. Fenwa Milhouse I mean, she gets into it as she tells her story, but I was really talking to a trailblazer who loves to talk about pee and masturbation and cool gender-affirming surgeries she's done. Okay, 
please enjoy my visit to your favorite urologist, Dr. Milhouse. To start, could you just introduce yourself and share who you are, what you do, and why? Yeah. So I am uh, Dr. Fenwa Milhouse. I am a board-certified fellowship-trained urologist. I work in the Chicago area as a pelvic floor and sexual medicine female urology specialist, although I treat all humans. Um, and what is my why? My why is that I love people. I want people to feel their best selves, their authentic selves. I like talking about taboo, quote unquote, taboo things um, that I don't think should be taboo and just making that conversation normalized, comfortable for judgment-free zone uh, to help people. What are some of the quote unquote taboo kinds of things you're referring to? Well, I mean, I deal with leaky bladders, so incontinence, not being able to control it or hold it. That could mean from urine and also fecal incontinence. That's a taboo, taboo. Um, And sexual dysfunction issues. So I, you know, never had an, uh, I can't get an erection. I don't know how to get an orgasm or it's difficult for me to orgasm or I have no interest in sex um, or I, it hurts when I have sex um, or, um, you know, I, I come too fast. Uh, all these type of things. Um, I, you know, is masturbation, masturbation to do, to not to do Um, what's going on down there. Something's hanging out in my vagina. Is that normal? Um, These things. Now tell me a little bit about why there is a misconception that urologists are male gynecologists. Yeah, that is very pervasive. In fact, I initially thought that was the case too. When I was in medical school, I first heard about urology. I figured it was for men by men. It was a male gynecologist. And I understand that very well because urology is the study of the urinary system and the male reproductive system. And so it is the specialist that humans with uh, with penises will go to for their penis testicle, balls, you know, prostate, et cetera, organ um, issues. Okay. And so there is no other specialist uniquely in that, you know, niche. Um, That's, you know, how we get labeled the male gynecologist. And certainly a lot of the patients we treat are humans with penises. But the fascinating thing that people don't realize is that urologists are also keenly because of the fact that a lot of the anatomy in humans with vulvas is analogous to humans with penises. I mean, we all started this embryo that's undifferentiated and then it differentiates. And so it, it, it's um, a lot of home, uh, homologous organs. We are keenly a position to help anybody with a wide variety of sexual and urinary issues. Um, if you pee, you you are you are liable to need a urologist at some point, uh, regardless of your sexual gender, identity, sexuality, X, Y, Z. Um, and so we are the specialists, absolutely not just for for men. It reminds me that there's that 
a children's book called Everyone Poops. And it, it's reminding me of the, this is the version of Everyone Pees. <laughs> or make urine in some kind of way. That's a problem. And that, you know, so incompatible with life. So yes, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So tell me your backstory of how you decided to pursue urology. Okay, so I had no idea that urology was even a thing. I didn't know about it until about the first week in medical school. And, you know, everybody's going around asking, sizing each other up. Hey, what do you want to be? And I did. I had no idea what I wanted to be. I, you know, was really happy to be there and getting into medical school was was an accomplishment in of itself. I knew I was going to be a doctor of some sort, but you know, there are certain people who knew, Hey, I want to do orthopedic surgery, or I want to do OB-GYN, or I want to be a radiologist. And one of my classmates was like, I want to be a urologist. And I had to pretend like I knew what that was because I'd never heard of that specialty. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And then I went back to home and Googled it. And I looked it up and I saw all these pictures of white men and prostate and, you know, you know, penises. And so I was like, oh, OK, yeah, this is sounds like nothing that I want to do. This sounds like nothing that would be for me here. I am a woman. I'm a black woman. You know what? I crossed it off. Didn't think about it again. Um, that all changed when I met a woman urologist, a black woman urologist who came and gave a quick. It had to be maybe 15 minute. Um, just intro to urology lecture to us. And I was about to leave, you know, I was about to skip and ditch out that lecture. (laughs) You know, I'm not, I'm not going into this, but then and walks this, you know, a black woman who's the interim chair. And I was, you know, just blown away simply because this was this field that was, is still to this day, heavily male dominated. And here she was, Uh, And just her being was a statement in and of itself. And it literally made me see myself in a different light and made me think about the possibilities. Uh, Urologists are surgeons. And if you would have told me I would be a surgeon when I was applying to medical school, first starting out medical school, I would have laughed in your face and said, no way. I don't have what it takes. I'm not polished enough. I'm not refined. I'm kind of, you know, unsure of myself. I don't have enough smarts, all these kind of things that we, you know, talk ourselves down um, and, and don't realize we are fully capable of these things. But I just didn't see that representation. You know, when you don't see that, it's, you know, it, it becomes hard to put yourself there. And so that moment with her name is Dr. Lenane Wesney changed my life because I saw myself in her and the rest is history. I, I basically was like, I emailed her. I said, I want to shadow you. Will you, will you let me shadow, shadow you? And urologists are like really fun and friendly type of surgeons. We like people that are interested in what we like to do. Cause we by and large really like what we do and we like to talk as you can tell. Mm-hmm. And so um, they were like, yeah, come on, join, you know, no problem. And I, you know, I was like, this is, this is where I'm, I'm supposed to be. You know, it's funny. Uh, so in reading up for our interview, I noticed that theme come up a lot of people saying like, you know, urologists, I just really enjoyed their personalities. They're super fun. <laughs> like, what? what is, so the, the, it is a stereotype, it sounds like, that is uh, that holds. It is. I mean, obviously, it's a stereotype. It's a generalization. But there's some truth to it, for sure. I mean, we tend to be 
the type of uh, physicians or surgeons that don't take ourselves too seriously, that are comfortable talking about sensitive issues, we have to be. And so we have, you know, tend to have found a way to talk to people that gets them to open up. Um, we, again, are, are, we do a lot of we do a lot of serious things, but we do a lot of quality of life stuff. And so I think that lends itself to just less overall stress and, and pressure. And so, um, you know, you'll find us like enjoying ourselves in the operating room and, um, and, and really just enjoying what we do. So it definitely is a theme that I absolutely saw as a medical student. And then a theme that I continue to see as a urologist among my colleagues. So you decide to pursue urology, and like you mentioned, it's still a field that is, you know, overwhelmingly male and also like very white male. So what kinds of challenges or did did it that present particular institutional or individual challenges for you as a black woman entering this field? Of course. So. I had to first like pump myself up because again, I had, I had the one example, which was huge. Um, but I will tell you, I didn't have a lot of strong mentors beyond that. Um, my Dean of students kind of, you know, sub, she kind of like discouraged me, not, not uh, overtly, but she wasn't really encouraging um, of, of me pursuing that field. And I don't believe a woman had ever um, matched in urology at my medical school. Um, so it was like a double whammy. Uh, I uh, was worried about like, would patients want to see me? Would my attendings kind of respect me and want to teach, you know, all these things. Um, and every everybody's individual experience is different. My experience is by no means the experience of Black trainees or black women trainees in urology. In fact, there's a really important piece in stat news that was released, I think a couple months ago by my colleague, Dr. Chanel Wilson. She describes her experience as a trainee and it was a lot of gaslighting, a lot of, you know, just, you know, and studies have shown that black residents tend to be um, put on probation and tend to be uh, at disproportionate rates. Um, but my personal experience was once I got to residency, I was supported uh, by my program. So I went to U University of Chicago and I was the third black woman to have come through that program, which was is huge, yeah. it's huge for huge, like and um, the I think the fourth black person overall. Um, and so I, they, I felt like, you know, um, you know, more accepted. Um, and I, there, not to say there wasn't microaggressions. I, I think a large part of that is unintended, um, you know, biases, but there were, but I felt that they wanted to see me succeed, invested in me, allowed me to make the mistakes that we do in, in, in learning um, how to become uh, the doctor for real. And they, you know, instilled in me the values that I have um, now, now uh, that's on the, like, you know, the, the training side of things on the patient facing side of things, you know, I've heard some of the worst things 
um, that pay, pay people can say to uh, uh, a doctor or to a human in general. You know, um, slavery wasn't all bad. A patient kind of joked with me about that. And, you know, some patient said they hated how my hair, they thought it was super ugly, you know, um, you know, other things like that, you know, so there are definitely jarring things that stick out a patient who refused outright to even see me, um, did not want to shake my hand, was disgusted by me. It was like, no, I don't want, you know, um, you as a doctor, uh, uh, being a black doctor. Um, and so there are those things that you just kind of have to get through and uh, and uh, keep it moving. It's helpful because now I have a tribe. Now I have uh, and, and now I'm the boss. A bit, so <laughs> I can now I can be like, well, there's the door, you know, <laughs> thank you. Have a nice day. Your services will not be I will. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> today I have that ability. And so um, it's not that I have to just suck everything up. And I, I don't I speak up, you know, whether it's happened me or somebody around me, um, I speak up. So on the kind of flip side, on the patient side, this is a really big question, probably overly broad, but um, how does medical racism show up specifically in urology? And even if we want to narrow it down to urology for people with vaginas? So, so medical racism or health disparities and and that sort of stuff shows up every facet, I think, of medicine. Um, One of the uh, biggest disparities in urology most common is in relation to prostate cancer Mm. and and that uh, black men are at two times higher risk of prostate cancer and prostate cancer death. And what's even more alarming is even if you believe that this is biological, which we are now realizing that biologically race is a construct and a lot of these disparities are um, uh, based on social determinants of health and structural and uh, racism. Um, So even if you don't believe, oh, it's biological even amongst what we call low grade prostate cancer. So this is like the early stage prostate cancer that no one should be dying from really. Um, Even amongst that subset of prostate cancer, black men are less likely to receive definitive treatment and more likely to die. You know, it seems, you know, crazy um, to think of, of something like that. Black uh, children who undergo urologic surgery are are more likely to have complications within the um, the first thirty days. Um, we know that in medicine, um, patients who've undergone surgery or or uh, need pain medicines, black patients are mo- are less likely to get prescribed pr- uh, proper pain medicine or any pain medicine. Uh, for that fact, um, when it comes to bladder cancer, uh, black patients have worse um, surgical outcomes or higher risk of worse surgical outcomes. Um, you know, the uh, there's laundry list. We know this is not urology, but, you know, we know pregnancy and uh, black women is alarmingly uh, a disservice that we are doing. Um, and that even me as educated, as, you know, informed, as whatever a high, you know, socioeconomic status as 
you know, I am, I am at more, more than three times higher risk of pregnancy related death uh, than you. Um, even with me being able to be like, no, I, you know, I, I know, okay, this is what I should look for. This is what I should not look for. Um, and so a system like that has a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, ingrained racism, um, and systemic in- inequities that make that, that, that way. Do you, have you observed, like, is, is the field paying attention to those kinds of disparities and making the kinds of efforts that need to be made to close those like healthcare gaps and disparities? Another bit giant question. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this isn't a single factor that's involved. These there are factors that will require a, you know, systemic change beyond just the healthcare world, um, uh, you know, and. So is are we recognizing it? I would say, yes, the conversation has started in the wake of George Floyd, in the wake of COVID and seeing the disparities there. We've kind of had this awakening or reckoning like, whoa, OK, we are doing this wrong. Um, and so if you just flat out aren't paying attention, you're it's bad for business, quite honestly. Um, and so, yeah, the conversation has started. OK, we recognize that it's not biology. It's probably inequities. Where can in healthcare, where in these specialties can we try to close the gap? That's a harder thing to figure out. I think that when first step is acknowledging the way that we're patient, a zip code that a person is born into mm-hmm can affect their health is huge. And I'm not just talking about simple poverty. I'm talking about direct things that have been in place for eons that put people of color at a disadvantage. People of color are at higher risk of exposure to environmental pollutants. Okay, people of color are at higher um, exposure to high density of liquor store, tobacco stores in their neighborhoods. People of color are are less are more likely to live in food deserts and not get proper you know access to proper nutrition. They're more likely to have um, more issues with transportation and not have reliable transportation means. You know these are all things that you know have been woven into the fabric of the United States and of America. And so I think recognizing that as a physician, when I see a patient and I'm like, why are they late for their appointment? Or why can't they do, you know, why is it so hard for them to eat? Right. Or why is it, if I recognize that they are literally like fighting this environment that is, is, is making it very hard for them to do the right things, very hard for them to make the right choices. Not it's, it's, you're like, you're born into like something that is going is going to fail. Even it's sad to think about it. It's enraging when I think about it. Um, and so recognizing that and then figuring out, you know, when we say equality, it's not equality, because if I give the same thing to every single mm. person. Well, then some people who are better off are going to have better outcomes. Right. You see yeah. I'm saying I have to be equitable. So I may have to give more time, more energy, more this, more whatever to somebody who really is in need of these things. And so it has to be equitable um, care that we have to strive for, equitable. So drilling down a little bit more on 
women and people with vaginas and urology, what are the kinds of what are the kinds of things that patients are typically coming to you for? Sure. So um, women with vulvas, number one, I, I see a lot of recurrent UTIs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It plagues so many of us, um, you know, one in four will have what we call recurrent UTIs, which is two or more in six months or three or more in a year. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I countless, countless and young, old, um, it's definitely more common as we get older. Um, I see incontinence and most patients figure oh, incontinence only affects people who are old, or if you've only had baby, if you've, you know, but it's not, I've seen young teenagers with incontinence. In fact, being a, an athlete or um, can be a risk factor because of just the stress on the pelvic floor. Um, um, I see a lot. I see a lot of sexual complaints that don't really get treated. So women with vulvas, unlike women, well, sorry, humans with vulvas, unlike humans with penises, are we have ingrained that we just put up with a lot of stuff. We mm-hmm. definitely put up with a lot of stuff. Whereas humans with penises, like they look down there and something ain't working right. Doesn't look right. Doesn't feel right. It's a problem. I need to get seen now where we won't ever even look down there to see what it looks like. It doesn't feel right, but we'll just mm, suffer, you know, sex hurts, but you know, that's normal. That's what they say. You know, Oh, I don't, I don't, I've never had an orgasm. I don't feel it. I don't, you know, I'm not into it, but it's just what I have to do as a, as a human with the vulva. And so there's, that's, you know, widely pervasive and it's frustrating because I understand that we, who do you go to? And, and the patients who've a lot of the experiences, the patients who've gone to somebody, Hey, doctor, such as I've gone to the primary doctor. I have this complaint. Can you help me? The problem is we, medicine, medicine has not taught us how to treat these things. I mean, women's, women's sexual issues, women's issues, but women's sexual issues is absolutely not a priority. Absolutely. Just completely, not even not a priority, just not, has not been important at all. Not been a thing, you know, until recently, what women have, have a sexuality that we need to invest in and treat. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? Or mm-hmm. So um, there's a gap in knowledge. There's a gap in um, uh, resources. And so I have inadvertently taken that on. I didn't think I would go into urology, like having a lot of that on the, on the vulva side of things, but it, it, it kind of came to me because people didn't have any place to go. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I have a vulva and I want these people to, 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 to have help. And I want to be the, the person that helps them. And so I've educated myself and I'm still learning and I'm, you know, um, I'm being an advocate. So those are the big issues. And then in my older vulvas, they can have something called prolapse. Prolapse is where something herniates outside of the vagina. So you can have your bladder, your uterus, your rectum, and, you know, coming out almost like a scrotum. <laughs> I had a patient who jokingly said, I feel like I've grown a scrotum, you know, that's hanging out. It's, uh-huh. you know, it causes shame, embarrassment. It's not comfortable. They have to like adjust themselves like a dude, you know? So, um, I treat a lot of women that way and, uh, fix them up. Do you think for the 
patients that you see, um, on, let me let me reset. So you mentioned that for uh, patients with penises, they see something wrong. They're like, let me get out. Let me let me make that appointment. Okay. So for patients with vulvas that you see, do things tend to be? Do things tend to have gotten worse? Like, do they tend to have waited longer and perhaps let issues develop longer than um, than maybe they otherwise would have? Uh, yes, yes. They tend to have waited a while before they, oh, well, I've been actually dealing with this for years and months um, before they, you know, finally say, yeah, maybe I should check this out. It's bothering me. You know, I will it's a theme with, you know, my prolapse patients, why the time they finally, you know, will get surgery to fix it there. It's very common. They'll be like, Oh, I should have done this years ago. Like, what was I waiting on? You know what I'm saying? Patients who have incontinence are like, Oh, I just, you know, figured it was normal. You know, well, it's not normal. It's common. It's not normal. You know what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. And, um, but it's, and, and especially with sex, like, in fact, a lot of times, half the time, it'll be an aside. Like I'll see mm. them for something and be like, oh, okay, what about the, you know, sex? What are, oh yeah. Well, I, I don't have any, I don't have any desire. I don't, you know, and, and I'm like, well, do you, does it bother you? I mean, if it doesn't bother you truly cool, if it bothers you, but you just kind of gave up on it, like, let's not give up, you know? Um, but men, and if they can't get it up they're you know, they're in your office. I mean, I will see humans with penises in their nineties saying, doc, I need to get an erection. I'm like, cool. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, are you have, do you have a sexual partner? Nope. I just need to have the ability to get an erection for me. I can't argue with that. I suppose you see what I'm saying? So it's very different. Yeah. And I, before, before you reached out, I had never connected the dots between sexual health and urology. So could you could you explain that a little bit more for any other lay listeners like me who were totally clueless about this? <laughs> so as I said in the beginning, urologists deal with the male reproductive system and part of male reproduction is male sexuality, okay? Independent of the actual ability to reproduce and conceive, right? There's a whole business Viagra's and the whatever's that centers around just male sexuality heavily. Okay. And so regardless of the ability to reproduce or the desire to reproduce, there's this um, industry um, with erections, with low testosterone, with, you know, low libido and revitalizing uh, men in that way. And so we are very well um, trained and uh, educated and experienced in treating these type of things. The vulvas have some similar have similar issues um, um, and certain unique ones. And so there's been a dearth of specialists who've kind of made the female sexuality or sexual health. And in an, an industry out independent of reproduction. Obviously, mm. we have our obstetricians and gynecologists who know reproduction. Okay. You know, so if you have issues with reproduction, want to reproduce, that sort of stuff, it's easy. But a human with the vulva who's not trying to reproduce, who just needs help down there sexually, that's where it gets gray. And we have 
taken on the mantle of like going into this specialty, not just us. There have been definitely gynecologists have taken on this mantle as well. I think it's, you know, a combination of gynecologists and urologists who can deal with who can, this is our lane. Okay. Um, you know, the clitoris is uh, analogous or homologous to the, to the penis. Um, and so there are things that certain things that are like, okay, well, we see this in a penis all the time. If this can happen in a penis, well, this can happen to the clitoris, but we don't pay attention to the clitoris ever, but we need to start. Okay. We know that the clitoris is the golden ticket to the nine, almost 90% of women orgasms. Okay, most vast majority of women cannot orgasm without clitoral stimulation. Okay, mind blowing penetration. Cool. It's <laughs> clitoral stimulation that can get it going, you know, and so but we have not paid attention to that organ. And so we are changing that. And that's where we're embracing this sexuality um, um, with all um, humans, you can, okay, it's not just for penises. Um, and that's very important. I, and I really have a passion to explain that and get that message, message out and empower my patients with vulvas that, listen, your sexuality and sexual complaints can't, should not be ignored. I already know the penises aren't ignoring it. So <laughs> I'm there to help them too, but I don't even got to tell them that because they aren't ignoring it. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, At most of some, I would say some, I'm, I would get venture most haven't even ever looked at our vulva and seen like what really look, things look like on us. Um, and so that's a whole nother thing, like get acquainted with your vulva, with your vagina. Yeah. Where, and where, where do you think that, is it, is it fear? Is it, we just don't have an accessible hand mirror? Like why? <laughs> Oh, we got plenty of mirrors. Okay. <laughs> so if you know us, we got the little little compact mirror. We got the hand mirror. We you can even use your selfie function on your phone yes. if you're really yeah. great. <laughs> so we got plenty of things. Um, it's, you know, it's just, you know, okay. When you were growing up, did anybody normalize looking at your vulva? Did, or is it kind of kind of thought to be kind of gross? Yeah, no, those are my privates. Yes. And yeah. like, it was kind of, I mean, I'll speak on me, like kind of gross, you know, ugh, it's kind of gross, you know, it's dirty, clean, this and that, you know, these themes of grossness associated with our vulva and with our vagina. I remember seeing graphics of the vulva and I'd be like, oh, that's not cute, you know, <laughs> <laughs> You know, and this is ingrained like I, you know, as from from childhood, um, you know, it was not normalized at all. And so that's different from, you know, part of it. Men just look down there and they can see it. But, you know, it's right there. But it's also not there. They don't look at their penis and think gross. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? There's not this gross factor, you know, and so we have to get away from this gross factor. I'll have patients. They're so sweet, but they'll, I'll go to examine and they'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry, doctor. Oh, I feel so bad. You have to like look down there. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is your body part, just like your arm, like your, like your knee, like your elbow. Like, don't apologize. You wouldn't apologize if I was looking at your elbow or your knee or something or your, your chin. Like, no, you know? Um, and so we got to get over that. And then we, no one taught us, no one 
where did I learn that we had three holes? I don't remember. I just know it wasn't in school. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the girlfriend who was like, "Uh, duh, we pee out of a different hole. You know what I'm saying? Like Uh high school friend or junior high friend who was like kind of new, you know, new, you know, new more like, uh, well, it's a different hole, you know? And you're like, Oh, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) You knew, you know? So you just, you know, we have a lot of work to do. There's a very funny episode on, Oh, what is that show on Netflix? Big mouth. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like this cartoon about puberty. It's an adult cartoon, not for kids. Um, and she is, uh, looking at her vulva and her vulva, you know, everything's animated there. So her vulva is right. animated and she's like, Hey, welcome. Let me show you the tour. You know, she's like, this is your clitoris. And this little hole right here is your urethra opening. And this is, and then she opens her mouth. She's like, this is the opening of the, you know, introitus of the vagina. And these are your labia. And I'm like, this is great. I need to tell every patient of mine to go listen, to, look at that. episode. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, visit more often. I'm like, yes, that's what we need to do. Visit more <laughs> often. Yeah. <You know? laughs> Feels like this ties in probably connects nicely to what we we're talking about. So what kinds of ways does uh, does masturbation factor into, um, I guess, your urogenital health or in what ways are you wanting to familiarize people with it? Yeah. With, like, why is this doctor talking about masturbation <laughs> as a urologist? Well, um, again, like our vulvas, masturbation, female masturbation is not is not talked about it's um maybe considered you know not proper taboo gross um sinful um i um as a black woman where religion in the black community is ingrained in a lot of our facets uh, i will tell you it is absolutely like to this day preached as sinful you know in the church but it's so many people do it, you know, <laughs> and they do it, you know, uh, behind closed doors and they don't, maybe they don't realize they're doing it. Kids masturbate, kids masturbate. They don't know that they're masturbating. They just know something feels good. You know what I'm saying? I remember being a kid and putting like a stuffed animal between my legs and kind of just like rubbing and being like, oh, that feels good. But knowing that something felt wrong about that, and feeling ashamed and like, oh, I can't have anybody figure this out. And I didn't know that was masturbation. I didn't know, but I just knew it didn't, wasn't proper, quote unquote. And so we carry that into adulthood hundred percent. Masturbation, and I'm speaking to the vulvas here. I see it more of allowing us to get to know our bodies and get to know what feels good so that we can then enjoy partnered relations it enhances partnered relationships. If you are worried like, oh, I'm, if I masturbate, that's going to like decrease the quality of my relationship with my partner. Actually, it usually does not do that. In fact, quite the opposite. It can, again, enhance that sexual relationship, enhance your arousal, enhance your sensation, enhance the ability to orgasm. If you don't know what feels good, then how is a partner going to be able to guess and know what feels good? Okay. You see what I'm saying? And so I tell patients who suffer from a lack of orgasm, I ask them about masturbation 
when they're like, oh, no, I don't, you know, and I say, okay, what's stopping you? And it's almost invariably like, oh, I just feel like weird or shame or guilt. And, you know, that is very understandable, extremely understandable. And I think this is where our sex therapists who are therapists, because I am not, can help kind of break those walls down. But I am like, girl, no, this is totally healthy, normal. It's healthy. It's normal. You are not going to break your clitoris. You are not going to stunt your orgasm. You are not going to go to hell. You, you know, all of these things that have limited us. I have a very good friend who is now 40 and she's like very sexually liberal. And yet to this day, she's never bought a vibrator or used one because she said she's scared that it might ruin sex with her partner, to which I say over and over again, like, well, you never know until you try. <laughs> like, w- Would using a vibrator um, just just make a, in this case, a, a penis just totally irrelevant? No, it doesn't. And I get that logic. Even me, I wasn't open to a vibrator until, you know, well into my adulthood. Not One, because I didn't know how to use it. Like I was like, uh, you know what I'm saying? And then the other thing was I was worried like, oh my God, if this vibration, whoa, well, penis can't do that. And as a person who uses a vibrator and loves my vibrator, loves it, but loves my husband's penis. Like it is actually the opposite. Again, it enhances the ability for the clitoris to get aroused. The clitoris, again, like the penis gets engorged with blood And that increases sensation and that feels better. And so you can incorporate your vibrator in partnered sex. Boom. (laughs) You don't have to have one or the other. You can have both. You know what I'm saying? And even without incorporating it into partnered sex, you will be more enhanced because again, your body's now like it's, it's revved up and knows, oh, this feels good. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You can then tell, you know, use that experience to tell your partner, oh yeah, yeah. Pressure right there. I think that that hang up of like, oh, I don't want to use it because I'm afraid. I would say, try it, try it and let me know what happens. Speaking of sexuality, though, we also so Unladylike also has listeners who identify as asexual. And I wonder if that ever factors into your practice. Yes, it's important when we talk about sexual dysfunction, it's not because of the partner's dissatisfaction. So patient has no sex, uh, no desire is the next thing is a patient bothered by it. It's not really pathologic if the patient doesn't, isn't bothered. I don't have a desire to have sex and it does not bother me. It's not, it's just not, that is not a pathology. That is normal variant. That is normal. Okay. The different from, I don't have a desire. I lack a desire, low desire, and it bothers me, not, you know, my husband or whatever. Um, it, so that's important. And I definitely have asexual patients And I think they get the short end end of the stick because they probably live in a world where it's like sex, 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 sex. Jeez, you know, right? Is it like they probably feel like, oh, it's it's. Can we normalize just not being into sex? Yes, we should normalize not being into sex and that being completely a okay. You have absolutely 
something to give to someone. You can be in a loving relationship and be asexual. You cannot be in a relationship and be asexual. You can, you know, I'm so you can have fruitful, meaningful encounters without the sexual part to it. I'm also curious if you see trans patients and what kinds of urological health care they're seeking, maybe distinct from, say, cis women or men. So we have to remember as urologists that trans women still have a prostate. So even with gender affirming surgery, the prostate is not typically removed. I don't think it's really ever removed unless it's for some pathologic reason. Now, when you're young, it doesn't matter so much, but as that trans woman ages, that prostate can present some issues. So we still have to screen trans women for prostate cancer. If you have a prostate, it can get cancer. Okay. Another thing that happens with the prostate as you age is it can get in the way of urination, making it more difficult to pee um, and that sort of stuff. So it can affect a urine function. um, And so we have to remember that and factor that in. It does, you know, paint the picture a little bit more complex. But again, we know prostate very well because we talk about sex a lot, you know, uh, within our field. We have to remember that, you know, we can't assume anything about the gender identity of the other partner and, 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 and that sort of stuff. And a lot of our old questionnaires were kind of heteronormative mm-hmm. and skewed towards penis vagina penetration. And that's not at all the only sexual encounter. So um, there, that's, you know, being acknowledged and being changed. I see more trans women than I do see trans men, um, trans men with gender affirming surgery obviously have what we call a neophallus. So they will get a shiny penis, um, that is, uh, constructed, uh, constructed from the forearm. There's other, there are other ways, um, in, in residency, uh, there was a plastic surgeon that we worked closely with who did a lot of these. He would use a forearm. And then we in urology would be then called to implant a penile inflatable device because this new neophallus needs to get erect. It doesn't have the quality, the same you know ability mm-hmm. to get erect like a penis. And so we make that by putting in this inflatable prosthesis in this new fat, this new penis so that it gets erect. And so that's really cool to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's really cool to be a part of, uh, to complete that, uh, gender affirming procedure. What is your number one favorite thing about what you do? It's a tie. I think, um, mm-hmm. I love surgery. Like I I just, I love surgery. I walk into the operating room and I'm like, yes, my happy place. I put on my music that gets me in the, in the groove. And a lot of the stuff that I do, the patients are going to like, see the benefit very quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of the stuff is visually like, Ooh, yes. I often say this. I'll be like, I just gave her a brand new Bugatti. Like, look at this. (laughs) this Snatched, you know, I'm not talking about 
plastic cosmetics, which I'm just talking about functional stuff. And so I love that. I love being able to like use my hands and I truly love connecting with patients. And they're like, man, doctor, I just, I, I'm, I feel so free talking to you about this. Thank you. Uh, for making it easy to talk to, uh, you know, I, I I don't feel like I'm being judged. I I joke that I'm a neuropsychiatrist because, you know, in order to talk about this, you have to, you have to relate to people. And so when I can do that, and I I would say that I can do that fairly well for the vast majority of people. It it's it's a pleasure. You know, the old train, the old way in medicine was to not show them, not show a lot of emotion, be, you know, very stoic and kind of like rigid. And I remember like thinking medical in medical school, like, I just, that ain't for me. Like, <laughs> just knowing like that just, that just ain't me. I've cried with patients in the, in the office together, wiped tears. We've laughed, we've vented. That's the beauty is it's not just relating to a certain subset of the demographic, like humans of all walks of life. I've got 90 plus year olds that have adopted me as their grandchild or something like that. And, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. It makes me have faith in humanity, even the moments that I've shared with my patients. And I have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what is the most unladylike thing about you? I curse. I love to curse. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know that you've cursed this whole time. <laughs> I haven't. What the fuck? There we go. There we go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I've had enough. That is the bonus, y'all. Be sure to follow Dr. Fenwa Millhouse on Instagram at Dr. Millhouse and on TikTok at your favorite urologist. And while you're at it, come on over to the Unladies Room. For $5 a month or more, you can join the Patreon. You are directly supporting Unladylike. You get a weekly bonus episode, exclusive discounts on brand new merch at unladylike.co slash shop. And my sincerest, deepest gratitude. Patreon.com slash Unladylike Media is where you can find that. You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. Next week, I'm going to have another Unladies Room bonus for y'all. And in July, there are going to be brand new Unladylike episodes. Until next week. If you pee, you are liable to need a urologist at some point. 